0: bow and pray with me. Father God, in the midst of so much bad news in our world, we come before you this morning to be reminded of the good news, that you're our good, good Father, that you still reign on your throne and that you are not out of touch, you are not immune from our hurt and our pain and the brokenness of our world. But, God, that you demonstrated your great love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we come to you this morning, Lord, as a community of faith and even as a nation and a world that hurts so much this morning. And we pray that uh, we would look to you for comfort and we would look to you for hope. We thank you that though for three days it looked as if death and sin and pain would rule Three days later, your son rose from the dead, defeating all suffering, all sin and death to bring life and to bring new creation to this world. Lord, we believe that Jesus is the answer to our problems. And Lord, I pray that you would help us in this hour to focus our hearts, focus our eyes upon him, the author and perfecter of our faith. That you would protect us from worry, from fear, that we would not uh, move to isolation or retreat, but that we would move out in courage as ministers of the gospel and ministers of reconciliation here and around the world. And God, we just pray, pray your peace in our hearts, pray your peace in our nation, pray your peace in our world. We ask all these things in the, the beautiful name, the wonderful name of Jesus, our Savior You may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Centennial Church. My name is Ross. So glad that you're here, each of you, uh, this morning. We had a uh, fun week around here at the church. In the midst of all the bad news, we had a lot of kids here for some kids camps and uh, lots of mess, lots of noise. Uh, Miss Nish did a wonderful job, as well as, as well as others. Miss Alina. Who, who, am I, who am I missing? Alicia. Thank you guys so much. But we have some pictures, I think, of the kids uh, having a mess. And one of the things that, that uh, impacted me as I watched the kids get messy, cook things, uh, just get all dirty, is how well they play together. And I thought, wow, what a picture, what an example for our world to watch these kids uh, of various backgrounds um, get along wouldn't it be nice uh, if the world could get along like our kids often get along? Now, we know that's not always the case, right? Um, you know that. But even yesterday, uh, as my family and I, as we were at our neighborhood pool, I noticed that my daughter, who's five years old, little Cami, was playing uh, with a bunch of boys over at the side of the pool, boys that were Indian, boys that were Hispanic, boys that were African-Americans. And I thought, well, isn't that beautiful? isn't that beautiful? The only slight problem I had with that picture was that she was playing with all boys. And I thought, oh my, here we go. Uh, but it was a beautiful picture. I was part of a, of a service on Tuesday night, a, a unity rally in our community with over 2,500 people. It was called Acting Together on Our Knees. And I prayed with other area pastors, uh, black pastors, white pastors, yellow pastors, red, yellow, black, and white. And we prayed for our nation. We prayed for Dallas. And it was a beautiful picture. And then we had a, a two-hour service where African-Americans stood up and, and the Anglos among us prayed for the african African-Americans, and then the uh, Anglos stood up and the African-Americans prayed for us. We heard from many uh, pastors, many wonderful speakers as we tried to to pray uh, for Dallas, to pray for our nation. And it's important. Our mission statement as a church is centering lives on Jesus Christ. And you may be thinking this morning, maybe you thought this week, what does racial... Reconciliation have to do with the gospel. Aren't we about centering lives on Jesus Christ? And yes, we are. And let me tell you what the gospel has to do with racial reconciliation. Everything. Everything, because what God is doing in the gospel of Jesus Christ is He is bringing together people who were once enemies, enemies uh, to God, and enemies with each other. In fact, Ephesians chapter two. If you just want a quick. Uh, flip there quickly. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about how God is creating this one new man out of two different peoples. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 12, he, he says that Gentiles, formerly you were separated from Christ. Uh, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. But then he goes on to talk about how, in verse 13, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then he goes on, for he himself, Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Who has he made one? Jew and Gentile, black and white, He's made us one. He goes on in verse 15 to talk about how in himself he has created one new man. Not two ethnicities, not many ethnicities, but he's taken these multiple, these these dozens, these hundreds of ethnicities and is creating in the church one new man. He goes on in verse 16 to call it one body. The gospel does address ra- racial reconciliation. And in fact, I believe that now more than ever as a church, as churches in our world, we we are the hope of the world. We can model what diversity and unity look like as a church family, as a church body. And that is my heartbeat. It's not just because of the last two weeks, but it's been my, heart, my heartbeat for years that as Centennial Church and the other churches around us, we might be... That melting pot, or if a better picture perhaps, is a toss salad uh, where n- not everything is mixed all together, but a toss salad where we, uh, we maintain our distinctness, but we have this beautiful coming together of unity and diversity. Right now, folks, is the time that the church needs to step up and lead. We often say around here, if you've been at Centennial Church uh, at all, you know you've heard me say that all of us, not just the people on the stage, not just the elders or the staff, All of us are ministers and missionaries of the gospel. Ministers and missionaries. And one of the ways that we're called to ministry, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter five, he calls us in that chapter, ministers of reconciliation. Ministers of reconciliation. Each of us have an opportunity now to extend a hand to our neighbors, to extend a hand to our coworkers who are different from us and to model the grace of Jesus Christ through unity and diversity, I want Centennial Church to continue to be a more colorful place and colorful people, and I want you to join me in that. What can you do this week to extend a hand to that neighbor, to extend a hand to that coworker? Who can you invite into your home that looks different than you? Who can you sit around the table and see that your kids see that, hey, we're different, but there's a commonality here in the human race, and there's certainly a commonality in the church, let it be so. I challenge you, as I challenge myself this week, step out. It was beautiful to have a rally of 2,500 people to come together and pray and worship Jesus. You know where real change is going to happen? It's going to happen as we walk across the street. It's going to happen as I hug the neck of my African-American neighbors, invite them into my home and share life with them and share Jesus with them. I have an article that I want to share with you this morning. It'll be posted on our Facebook page later this morning and I also have some copies out there at the getting uh, the the connection center if you want a copy, but I've Xeroxed a copy of a blog of about a week ago by a a pastor and author named Kevin DeYoung. And Kevin he has 15 ways 15 uh, things to think through, how to process the violence and the the divisiveness in our nation. I encourage you to read that today. It'll be on our Facebook page. I'll post to it later, and there's copies out at the Connection Center. I encourage you to read that article. I also want you to know that before I uh, distributed this article to you, I wanted to run it by some of my black uh, brothers, other pastors here in the area. So I sent it to two of my black friends, pastor friends, and asked them, hey, is this fair? Uh, Is this a helpful article to to hand out to my congregation? And both of them said, yes, one was a younger African-American, one is a a middle-aged African-American. So I really want you to take that article, and most of all, I want you to take a a heart check this morning as as we move forward uh, in this season. Are you loving those different than you? Uh, Do you have implicit biases as you think about these things? Do you have prejudice that you need to confess, that you need to repent of? Folks, God loves the entire world. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, and the word "their nations, is ethne. It's ethnicities. Go into all ethnicities. Go into all cultures and all subcultures and make disciples. I was listening to another preacher this week who said it was interesting to him that for most of us, for, for white people, we typically think about culture or other cultures as those different than us. We don't, we don't typically think, hey, as whites, we have a culture. But our culture is kind of the baseline, and then we compare other cultures to ours because it's just kind of what is. It's just the norm, right? The norming norm. We have a culture, too. A culture, the way we sing, the way we preach, the way we gather, the way we do relationships. We have a culture. And guess what? Our culture isn't the only way to do things. What are your implicit biases as you have these conversations? Where do you need to learn? Where do you need to grow? How how does an African-American read the scriptures differently from you that might help you understand the scriptures better? How do our our lady friends among us read the scriptures differently in a way that informs us to read the scriptures more holistically and perhaps more objectively? I challenge you this week uh, to look, to extend a hand, to make the effort to be a minister of the gospel and therefore a minister of reconciliation in our world. We're going to spend some time, I'm going to ask you to be brave this morning. I'm going to ask a few of you to pray out loud, just sentence prayers after we watch a video here, and just to pray for our nation, to pray for our world, to pray for Turkey, to pray for France. I was told just this morning there was another shooting in Florida this morning at a hospital. There's also, right now, uh, violence taking place again in Baton Rouge, and police officers feared dead. We need to pray, and so I ask you in a few minutes to, play, to pray boldly, to pray briefly for Dallas, for our world, for our nation in these difficult times. I want, to bow, I want you to bow your heads right now. I'm going to read some scripture and invite you to listen to the song, and then after we play the song, I'm going to come back up and ask you to, to join me in, in prayer, okay? Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Help us, Father, to remember Philippians three, twenty and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And Father, we remember this morning the words of John, the revelation of Jesus Christ in John chapter 21, our hope. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new.
1: And now nobody feels safe I gotta turn off the news So my kids don't see another tragedy Oh, I wanna let them stay innocent At least for one more day Cause just when I think It can't get worse It gets worse And there are no words to say How much more can our hearts Great light will make the darkness disappear, and You will wipe away every tear, every tear. You will wipe away every tear. Lord, be close to the broken.
0: just bow and pray with me? And I encourage a few of you, just brief sentence prayers where you sit. Let's pray. God, we desperately need you. Father, we just beg, we cry out that you would have mercy on our land, that you would heal our land. Father, I pray that you would send us out to be agents of reconciliation. Lord, we pray for those that are grieving this morning In deep grief, we pray those that right now are under attack, those that are fighting to stay alive, those who are sharing the gospel in difficult places. We pray for the blacks among us who are fearful this morning. We pray for Muslims around us who are fearful. Lord, we pray for the families of those that grieve. We pray for these uh, families of the five officers. We pray for the families of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. And we pray even for the loved ones in the family of Micah Johnson, Lord. Would you please, please, God, work in our hearts, work in our nation, and work in our world. And I pray that your church would rise up, reflect you accurately, Love with compassion. Lord I'm reminded of Jesus when He looked out at the crowds and said that they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. and I pray that you would help us to have eyes of compassion, the eyes of Jesus, to see those who are hurting, those who are helpless, those that are hungry, those that are hopeless, those that are lonely, those that are lost. Lord, would you help us, to love one another, to love our enemies. And to speak of the only answer we know, our Lord Jesus. Again, it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Again, I want to say welcome to those of you that are with us perhaps for the first time this morning. Thanks for being with us. Um, Go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Uh, We're going to jump back into our study of Philippians. We're actually going to finish the study next week. Um, But this morning, I'm excited about our study in Philippians, and I I promise you it will be a little bit briefer than normal here, but uh, I'm excited about our study in Philippians this morning because this morning we come to the most popular verse in the book of Philippians. The most popular verse in the book of Philippians and perhaps one of the, definitely one of the most popular verses in the Bible. Do you know the verse uh, that I'm speaking of? Philippians 4.13, Philippians 4.13 goes like this. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, or some translations, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. One of the most popular verses in the Bible, certainly in the book of Philippians, I have an article up here from Christianity Today a couple months ago that uh, says that of the 8 million Bible verses quoted last year on Twitter, okay, of the 8 million Bible tweets, Philippians 4.13 is the most popular Bible tweet. Do you believe it? I do, the immensely popular verse. But here's what I want to say to you this morning. Not only is Philippians 4.13 the most popular verse in Philippians and one of the most popular verses that Christians quote, it is also one of the most misused and misapplied verses in the Bible. And I hope to be able to show you that here as we look at it this morning um, and perhaps get a better understanding of this wonderful promise that Paul gives us here in this chapter. Probably many of us, many of you have been at a place in life where you've sold your house or you've sold some property or perhaps you've bought some property. And I want to ask you this morning, most of you know that, that most real estate agents or people in real estate, they have a common uh, mantra, a common slogan that they say. Often they say it emphatically three times. What is the, the real estate mantra? Location, 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 right? Uh, it, of all the things that you have to juggle when you sell a home or you sell land, whatever property, uh, you've got to negotiate price. But one of the most important things is that issue of location. Location matters. And I want to say the exact same thing this morning for studying the Bible. When we study the Bible, location matters. Or you might say it like this, context, 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 okay? In fact, many of you won't be surprised this morning, but I I actually have this morning three main points, okay? Three main points. And if you're taking notes, here's my three main points. Write them down so you can remember them, okay? Point one, context. Point two, context. And point three, context, okay? I uh, hope you can remember that. We'll, I'll spell that out for you a little bit uh, more as we go along here. But first point, context. And what we mean by the first point in context is I'm talking here about the original or historical context as we, as we quote a piece of the Bible, okay? And uh, the original, the historical context matters immensely for how we interpret the Bible And that we interpret the Bible correctly, okay? The original historical context. What is going on in the first century? What is Paul doing? Where is Paul as he writes this letter? What's what's happening as he pens Philippians 4.13 that we will now quote and tweet immensely in 2016, What's the original context? And those of you that have been around here as we've gone through this series, you'll remember that Paul's context, his situation as he writes the letter of Philippians, is not the best of circumstances. He's imprisoned. He's he's under house arrest. He's chained to a Roman guard. Not the best of circumstances. So what he has in his mind as he sits, likely in Rome, chained to a Roman guard, is probably not uh, his next advance or his next promotion at work or the, the really nice car that he hopes he can get if the Lord will strengthen him, right? Uh, the original historical context here is, is not a great one. His circumstances are, are not one that we would want to trade places with him, right? Right? And even as as Paul is, is brought into ministry in Acts chapter 9, as, as Jesus is speaking to Ananias, who will go and, and get Paul after he's been blinded by the light, right? Uh, Jesus says to Ananias, go and get Paul. He's going to be my chosen instrument. And Ananias is like, what? Paul, this guy, this Saul, this guy that's been persecuting the church, he's going to be your chosen instrument? And some of the first words that Jesus speaks to Ananias and therefore Paul about his life, about his ministry, we find in Acts chapter 9 and verse 16, he says, Tell Paul, he is my chosen instrument, and go and tell him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. How much he must suffer for the sake of my name. See, the original historical context here is coming from an apostle who knew that life wasn't just going to be rosy, wasn't always going to be advances and promotions and and plenty of money and lots of excess and convenience and, and, and comfort, but God had actually promised him quite the opposite, had promised him suffering. That's the original context. And as he writes this, he's in jail. And as he writes to the Philippians, they seem to be a good church. There's not many uh, rebukes in the letter of Philippians. But one thing we know about this time in the 60s is that uh, persecution in the Roman world was get, beginning to, to crank up. The heat was being turned up. So as he writes Philippians 4.13, he's, he's talking about endurance. He's talking about the strength to continue when things aren't the best, so what is the purpose of Philippians 4.13, even just from the original context, from this first century uh, hearers, first century recipients of this letter? Well, a couple of things that we can determine that it's not about. Paul, when he writes this, he, he is not concerned, okay? He is not trying to pump Ross up so that I could believe in my faith that I can go out this afternoon and run a marathon without training, right? Just by... For God, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That means I can go out and run a marathon. No training, right? No. You know, one of the first places I remember having uh, Philippians 4.13 was on my, when I was in high school, a summer weightlifting camp. You know, you go to weightlifting camp, you work out all morning, and what do they give you? A t-shirt. And what do they put on the back of the t-shirt? Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But I got news for us, folks. As Paul is writing Philippians, he he does not have in mind how fast you can run the mile or what your max is on bench press. That is not at the forefront of his mind. He is not concerned about that thing, those things. And is it a promise that, Philippians 4.13, is it a promise that if Tim Tebow paints it below his eyes, that that will somehow strengthen him or get God's graces on his side so that he can now go out and, and win a Super Bowl, huh? Well, apparently not. Um, That's not within the original context. That doesn't seem to be what is on Paul's mind as we think about the original historical um, setting, the original historical context. From there, we move uh, to the historical context. Secondly, to the immediate context. This is point number two. Not only do we try to consider with our study Bibles and with other historical uh, Bible helps, what's the original context, what's going on in history, but we also wanna always look at the immediate context. And here I'm talking most specifically about the grammatical and the literary context. So I'd like you to join me in, in not just reading verse 13, but reading verses 10, 11, and 12, okay? So join me, Philippians chapter four, and and follow along with me as I read beginning at verse 10. "'I rejoiced in the Lord greatly "'that now at length you have revived your concern for me. "'You were indeed concerned for me, "'but you had no opportunity. "'Not that I am speaking of being in need, "'for I have learned in whatever situation I am "'to be content. "'I know how to be brought low, "'and I know how to abound.'" In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the immediate context just around those verses. And it's been said by some Bible students, Bible teachers, that one principle when you read the Bible, when you're studying the Bible, one basic principle is this. Never read a verse of the Bible Never read a verse, and and, and another way of saying that, don't read just one verse, read around that verse, because God didn't give us the scriptures just to put on bumper stickers, okay? Or to tweet out, or to put on coffee mugs, or stitch, and put on a pillow. And these make great verses for that, but there's always a context. And here in the immediate context, what do we see about the immediate context here? The context is not about comfort, The context is about contentment. Being able to make do, not only with plenty, but in want. Not only in excess, but when you have need, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I put in my notes here. No matter your situation in life, learn to be content. That's what he's saying. No matter your situation in life, learn to be content. Whether you are in prison or whether you're in the palace, learn to be content. And he he tells us here that contentment is not circumstantial. It's not based upon having plenty because we all know that you can get your greatest needs, your greatest wants, and you, you can find that you get that thing that you really longed for, and then what happens? You grow discontent with that or it's taken away. So contentment is never circumstantial. And according to to Paul here in these verses, contentment is actually learned. It's a learned discipline. It's not something that comes naturally. We don't just naturally grow up content. And our kids certainly just aren't content at three and four and five and on and on and on, right? Contentment is something, it has to be learned. And he says two times in these verses, I have learned to be content." I have learned to be content. How do we learn to be content? How do we learn to be content? Well, one way, I think, as I just mentioned here briefly a second ago, one of the ways we learn to be content is uh, when we get those things. When God gives us those things that we really want, we get them, and then we realize, you know what? That really didn't scratch the ultimate itch, did it? I'm still left wanting I can get all the things that I want for my birthday or on Christmas morning, and then a week later, why is it that I'm discontent? The reason is because ultimately my contentment comes not in stuff, not in places, not in great vacations. though Those are great. But ultimately, my contentment has to be in Jesus alone. Amen. In Jesus alone and not the stuff. Contentment here is key. But contentment is not the key, okay? As he talks here in Philippians 4 about contentment, you might be tempted to say contentment is the main thing. That's the main name of the game. Well, guess what? Contentment is not the main thing. Because if, if contentment, if satisfaction is your main thing, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna use Jesus to bring you contentment. Potentially, But Jesus is not a means to your end. Jesus is not a means for you to be content, okay? Jesus is the end himself. That's why at the beginning of Philippians chapter one, Paul will say this. He'll he'll say, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. Whether have plenty or whether have great wants, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The end game is not contentment, the end game is Christ. And that's why in chapter three, verse 10, Paul says this, I wanna know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings that I may be like him and I may share in his resurrection. So contentment is key, but contentment is not the end. Jesus is the end and our relationship with Jesus is the end and contentment is found ultimately, finally, fully in Jesus, not our stuff. So we learn contentment. Let me finish there. We learn contentment through getting things that we really want, and then we realize that didn't do it. We also learn contentment, get this, through present hardships. Part of the difficulty, part of the suffering chips away at our pride. It chips away at our desire to make earth our home. So all the hardships, the suffering, the violence, the things that we see on, on TV, we learn contentment by realizing that's not gonna happen here ultimately. That those present hardships drive us to Jesus to where our ultimate contentment is found. And get this, though Paul says that he learns contentment here in these verses, in one sense it's paradoxical because he learns contentment, but there's another sense and where we could take you in other places in the Bible where in this life you actually will never be fully finally content. Did you know that? Because there's this thing that Jesus talked about and there's this thing that Paul promises called the eschaton, the end, the second coming of Jesus, the new heavens and the new new earth. And guess what? It's in that place, it's in that time that we will finally get the contentment that we so deserve, but not a day before will we have the contentment that we ultimately long for. So we learn contentment through present hardships but we also learn contentment through future hope. And that's what Paul is saying here. He said to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Philippians 1:29, he says, it's been appointed for you not only to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for his name. The same thing that was said to Paul. So the sufferings, the hardships, are, are, their purpose in them are to drive us to our future hope where our ultimate hope, where our ultimate contentment will be found. You follow me? How do we learn contentment, present hardships, future hope? Philippians 4:13 is not ultimately about athletic achievement. it's ultimately about contentment. Its application is more for the job loss than the job promotion. Its application is more applicable for the athletic injury than the athletic achievement. You follow me? Like many of you, we've uh, been going to summer camps this summer. I have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old, and they've done uh, VBS around uh, the city and things like that. But uh, a couple weeks ago, Braxton, our seven-year-old, was uh, in a sports camp. And it was actually hosted over here at Stonebriar Church. Excellent sports camp. Encourage you to check it out for next year. But it was a day-long, week-long sports camp. So we would drop him off, 9 o'clock, pick him up at 4 or 4.15, whatever, whatever it was. And uh, what was, and he loved sports and they got to kind of get a taste of 12 different sports. But what I loved about the camp was when we went to the award night, you know, all the parents come on Thursday night and they present the awards and all that stuff. But the director of the sports camp, man, he hooked me because he had this goal for the sports camp. And he actually told us, he said, parents, our goal in this week-long sports camp is not for it to be your kid's best week of the summer. We actually don't want it to be the highlight of the summer. In fact, we've programmed it. We've intentionally made it hard. They're going to be out in the heat. They're going to get tired. And one of the things that we want them to to know, the mantra that we tell them all week long is this. Kids, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Get comfortable being uncomfortable. And I love that. I love that. Our kids and us, we, have, we, we are living in this comfort-laden society, in this county where we're, our social values are convenience and, and comfort and everything new. And, and if we don't like something, then we just buy a new one. And if we can't afford it, we can put it on a credit card. Convenience, comfort, consumerism. And what this guy was rightly teaching our children is get comfortable being uncomfortable. Life isn't always gonna be grand. And sure enough, after the first day of the, of the camp, I asked Braxton, how, how was the first day? He's like, oh, it was hard, It's hot. Do you wanna go back? No. But he went back and he enjoyed the rest of But I loved the philosophy. I loved the philosophy. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. Get comfortable being uncomfortable. Get not comfort, but learn contentment. But man, that rubs against us, doesn't it? Because comfort and convenience, it's all up in us and it's all around us. But folks, the scriptures, Paul's words here and the the scriptures throughout, man, their, their primary values, sorry to break it to us, but their primary values are not comfort and not convenience and not consumerism, but contentment and commitment to Jesus, even when we have to suffer For his name. Can I get an amen? I knew I could get one. (laughs) Contentment. No matter your situation in life, learn to be content. And finally, point number three context again. Here we're talking about the broad context of the Bible, the broad context of the Bible. What does, and this, this takes a little bit more uh, difficulty, it's a little bit more sophisticated, but what does Philippians 4.13 not only have to do with the immediate context, but the wider context of the book of Philippians, and, and the wider context, and the wider teaching of Paul the apostle, and the New Testament, and even this, the entire scriptures. How does this one verse, verse 13, fit within the whole? This is where we want to consider the broad or biblical canonical. The Bible was put together as a canon. So you might sometimes you hear about talk about the canon of the Bible. How does this one verse fit into the broad scope of all the teaching of the Bible? Well, I've already mentioned in Philippians how Paul has told them in chapter 1, verse 29, you're going to suffer. It's been appointed for you not only to believe, but to suffer. And you look at Paul's own life. If you want to flip with me to 2 Corinthians chapter chapter 12, excuse me. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul here is kind of giving a testimony about his about his own circumstances and he tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that he has this thorn in the flesh. And Bible scholars don't exactly know what that might've been. So there's, there's, you know, they have their guesses maybe. Uh, You know, he had poor eyesight and that was kind of a thorn in his flesh. But he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses verses eight through 10 there, he says uh, in uh, verse seven, he says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. This thorn in the flesh, this suffering was given to him to keep him humble. It goes on in verse eight. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. Three times. The apostle Paul, the great missionary of the New Testament, he's pleaded with Jesus, would you take this thorn from me? Three times he's pleading. And what is the answer of Jesus? No. No, I'm gonna leave it. In fact, he goes on in verse nine, he says, but, to me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. See, you can't take Philippians 4.13 and say, God's gonna help you win the marathon. God's gonna help you set the record for bench press. God's gonna give me that promotion if it doesn't fit within the entire teaching of the scripture and Paul's own life, where there were times that he wanted some comfort. He wanted some convenience. He wanted some pain relief, but there are times that Jesus has said, no, no. My grace will be sufficient. The broad context of the Bible. And as I said earlier, not only the broad context of Philippians or the New Testament or Paul's own life, but also the broad context of the end of the Bible. As I said before, the Bible ends with a new heaven and a new earth. And it's there, not here. Then, not now. That will be comforted, that will finally be content with God our Savior and in a perfect kingdom of peace. But not until then. The wonderful message of Philippians 4:13 is, folks, no matter what you're going through right now this morning no matter what you're suffering with, no matter what you're worried about, no matter what your job situation, the promise of Philippians 4.13 is no matter what your circumstance, Christ will strengthen you to endure it. He will not give you everything you want, but he will provide for your every need. And, And you can endure all things through Christ who strengthens you. We can endure all things that happen in our city, that happen in our nation, that take place in a national election, that happen around our world. We can endure all things through Christ who strengthens us. Context, context, context. In whatever situation you're in, learn contentment you pray with me? Father God, we we just confess to you that we're creatures of comfort and we're creatures of convenience. And uh, we don't like to be told no. I know I don't like to be told no. But Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, by the example of Jesus and the power of Jesus, you would strengthen us to endure all things, all trials, all suffering, all hardships, all relational difficulty, that we would find you sufficient. Again, Father, we come to you this morning in great need and great need in our nation and pray that in our weakness, we would find you strong, that in our hurt, we would find you faithful, that in our fear, we would find you good and trustworthy please work in our hearts please work in our world it's in the name of jesus we pray